0: My guest today is Professor Nadia Mason, who is a professor of physics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she specializes in experimental studies of materials. Professor Mason's research focuses on uh, the electronic properties of small-scale materials, such as nanoscale wires and atomically thin membranes. Her research is relevant to applications involving nanoscale and quantum computing elements. She currently serves as director of the Illinois Materials Research, Science, and Engineering Center, a multidisciplinary research and education center funded by the National Science Foundation. Welcome, Nadia.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Um, so you were part of a committee um, on frontiers of material science research. Yes. Um, where you looked at um, you know, what has happened and uh, where we are, where we are going. Uh, when I was in undergraduate school in india in in mid eighties my advice i remember distinctly telling me that material science is where all the action is going to be for the next uh. fifty years <laughs> <laughs> right um, even though i you know uh, went to graduate school uh, in engineering uh, i I sort of left engineering a long time ago, so you have to keep me honest here as we go through this um, as some of Some of my memories may come back, but some may not <laughs> so right. Uh, and so the the research report says that modern material science builds on knowledge from physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, computer and data science, and engineering sciences to enable us to understand, control, and expand the material world.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And uh, you say, although it is anchored in inquiry-based fundamental science, Material research is strongly focused on discovering and producing reliable and economically viable materials, from superalloys to polymer composites that are used in a vast array of products essential to today's societies and economies. So this yeah. is not a topic you know typically we think about, but there's so so much uh, that has been done um, last fifty years or so in the area right. of materials. And like you say, the interdisciplinary approach to it, especially more recently, computer science and uh, data science right. um, seem to have done um, very interesting, interesting things there. So uh, I, I thought we can maybe go through some classes of materials, you know, to kind of set the um, set the conversation. So the first one is metals. Yes. And uh, you say, powered in part by widespread efforts such as the Integrated Computational Materials Engineering ICME yes. approach to materials development, the National Nanotechnology Initiative, and yes. the Materials Genome Initiative. Yes. Uh, Metals research during the past decade, decade has achieved numerous advances. So, could you uh, describe briefly, uh, first of all, what's the National Nanotechnology Technology Initiative and the Materials Genome Initiative?
1: Yeah, so the National Nanotechnology Initiative, I, I believe this was from 2001 under Clinton or something that it started. Um, this was this was an initiative to that's what it says to focus on things at the very very small scale. Yeah. So in 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 the 80s especially, and even in the 90s, there had been huge developments in imaging things that were very small. So if you think about it, you know our light has a wavelength at the, in the in the hundreds of nanometers, right? Hundreds yeah. times ten to minus nine. Um, Whereas when we talk about a nanometer, right, that's one nanometer. So you can't image things that are that small with light mm. because light's too big. <laughs> that
0: right, makes sense,
1: right. right? So in the, in the 80s, um, things like scanning tunneling microscopes, scanning electron microscopes, using things like electrons to bounce off materials and, and recreate images that way, um, gave us new ways of looking at very small scale structures. And, and determining the electronics of these very small scale structures and their behavior. And once we could image these and determine their electronics, you know, then we could start making things small. And then and there are also you know, correspondingly innovations in fabricating things that were very, very small. And so once these two things came together, we realized, okay, things at the small scale can be made, they can be imaged and they act differently. And so once we had all this access, there was a huge boom in trying to study things um, and and see what new behaviors um, could be created at these small scales. And then also, you know, taking something that was very small and putting a lot of them together to make a, you know, composite or larger materials or including them in other materials to get some new behaviors entirely. So that was the idea behind the National Nanotechnology Initiative. And that's not, I think that's not, that that lasted 10 or 20 years or something. I think it's not, mm-hmm. it basically ended already, but that, that, that allowed us to make huge progress in, um, new types of materials like carbon nanotubes and nanowires, everything has nano in it, as you can see, right? right, right. So, so, so that was one. Um, the other is the Materials Genome Project, was that the other? Yeah. The materials Genome yeah. Project is, so you know, so you, you know what the, the sort of Human Genome Project is? Right. The Human Genome Project, the idea was to map every gene in the human body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge project. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, but the idea is that once you, can, once you know all the combinations that are there, you can start pinpointing individual ones to try to figure out which ones are useful, okay? And that's the exact same thing that we do with materials. Um, The idea is if you can make a database that contains every possible material combination, and if it's a smart database, just like, you know, in the same way that we know what, you know, we can start figuring out what, you know, what genes correspond to eye color or to certain illnesses, if we can start figuring out what material combinations correspond to high conductivity, to high thermal, you know, excellent thermal properties, all these things, we can create equivalent materials genome where we can start predicting new combinations of materials that mm. give us the properties that we desire. So, so
0: this high entropy alloys, um, multi-principle element alloys or complex concentrated alloys are uh, composed of nearly equimolar concentrations of five or more metals that form extended solid solutions so so you could you could essentially now create custom um, solutions of metals right right and right. so so that, that's the you know sort of the uh, metal uh, material genome um, you know kind of go into that, or how does it work
1: well a lot of the a lot of the cases myth- so there's a couple of things here i mean one yeah. is so so I, I would say that the, both the nano the nanotechnology side of it is that a lot of these alloys are are, are are, um, are created by understanding the, nano, the nanocrystals and the grains and everything at, at the nanoscale in these things. And then um, things like Materials Genome, I think is used, you know, especially for systems like this to try to predict and understand which combinations can lead to better properties for right. sure. So there's always some experiment. There's, there's always some just experimentation and knowledge of how things work. You have to have a starting point. Materials Genome Project isn't finished. This is very much an ongoing project. So, okay. um, you know, you can start from that, and you can start with whatever knowledge there is already about materials, and then try to tweak it to try to create things that, that stabilize at different temperatures and have, and have different sorts of properties. Right, so, so
0: you know, the recent advances in uh, uh, computational technologies, data science, uh, artificial intelligence, and so on, are we to a point that once we have that raw material, that raw data, Um, Can we actually say these are the properties that we would like to have for an application and let the machine sort of determine how how that would work?
1: Well, that's the that's the goal. That's the goal behind it. But just as with the as with the human genome, there's complications. So, you know, even when you have the whole human genome, you can't predict what small changes will, will, you know, what, what will happen if you make a small change. Right? Or, yep. what, or what happens in, in any particular sequence, and you know, for, for better or worse, materials are very much like that. You can mm-hmm. say maybe this combination will be interesting, but does it matter if it's at a one percent combination? You know, one at one percent of the element, or twenty percent of the element, or you know, when you combine them, do they actually melt together? Right? Mm-hmm. Materials also have all sorts of other properties. Are they miscible? You know, do they have different? You know, will one of them crack? Is one of them brittle and the other one flexible? There's, there's all sorts of other issues that come in, even with metals, you know, are, are there things that when you combine them, do they, do they oxidize in a way that they're, they're very air sensitive that you might not have predicted? These okay. are things that you still have to worry about. So the Materials Genome Project, like the other project, any genome project is really a tool that helps you with your starting point. It helps you limit the, the variables to, to, to know, to give you a better idea of, of where a good starting point is that we're, you know, so that the fundamental research can begin from a more and more effective and efficient place.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it, it sort of um, changed, right? You know, um, now we can maybe predict what the properties might be for a combination uh, and then go look for manufacturability of that, right? right? You know, it never used to be like that. Right. We right. manufacture something and then test it. Right. Now we could actually hypothesize and then and then try to manufacture it. So manufacturability now is, is more of a more of a important game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, mean, I you call it manufacturability, but it is it is also if you think about it, it's also fundamental research and just yeah. under under you know there, because it does require a lot of a lot of knowledge and testing and. Um, and understanding of the fundamentals of materials, even just to combine them. So I think that you know, maybe there's a, there's a misconception that you know, to make a new material, if I wanted to make you know, steel or something, I would just take some iron and melt in some, some chrome yeah. or something and, you know, yeah. and out pop steel. That doesn't work that way, right? You have to harden it. You have to melt it at a certain temperature. You have to, you know, if, you, if you're not very, very careful with materials in terms of exactly what temperatures you raise and you cool them, exactly how you combine things, they can just shatter, for example. So so there is even in the in the proce- in the so-called processing stage there's a lot of fundamental physics and material mm-hmm. science and chemistry that that goes into that. Yeah that's interesting. I was
0: just about to say so so the process one would think is an engineering problem. I was just going to say that that can be solved mechanistically. Right. But that's not the case actually. No. You, you have you have yeah you have fundamental research yeah. happening in there too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's, and that's, and that's why materials, you know, I think that the quote the you started out with, I think was really great that talked about how it's a, there's a fundamental, you know, materials research is a f- focus on fundamental research, but always with an eye toward what might be useful, what might be helpful, what might be interesting, um, because there's so much fundamental ne- research that needs to go on to create materials. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you're always, you're always pushing towards something that you hope isn't going to break the minute someone tries to use it, you know.
0: Right, right. You talk about uh, bulk metallic glasses uh, a- as a class of compounds. What exactly is that?
1: Bulk type says this one isn't really in my
0: area of. Uh... Uh, so they say that metallic glasses uh, during the past decade have fostered their progression from a scientific curiosity into a variety of specialized commercial products. So mul- bulk metallic glasses offer near net shape uh, formability. Potential improvements in corrosion resistance and useful strength and fracture toughness. So, th- does it have anything to do with glass as we think about it, or it's something completely different?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, gla- a glass. So, it's, it's an interesting idea. A glass is basically something that um, doesn't have a well-defined lattice structure. Okay. So, this is this is why a, a, a metallic glass is something that um, that that's different from what you might expect. So, a, a glass is something that. Um, you know, if you think of a crystal, um, think yeah. of thing like sodium, right? The, the atoms are all in a very well-defined um, square lattice, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so many materials and, like metals that we think of have very well-defined lattices. But a glass, on the other hand, um, you think of as something that the, the lattice is is irregular. It's distorted, okay? Yeah. So that's why glasses can flow because the, the atoms are, arra- are not arranged in a regular way. Um, but yes. most glasses that we think of are insulators; they don't conduct electricity. Right. So a metallic glass um, is something that has become, you know, more, more viable and and even you know become commercially viable. in, in the past, in the past decade, these are materials that are like glasses and that they don't have um, the same sort of crystal properties, but hmm. but they are conducting um, at the same time.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, so so in this case, they. Um, what they do is they 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 take a something that would be a a glass and have yeah. and and or that, I'm sorry that would have a crystal basically a crystal yeah. structure like a metal and then by adjusting they they heat it and adjusting the rate at which they cool it they allow it to to um to have form, an what call an amorphous an amorphous structure yeah. right not okay. not something that where everything is well defined but have some sort of a more amorphous structure where it becomes like a like a glass basically
0: yeah, um, that's so interesting yeah so. So so you're taking a different material and essentially kind of modifying it to have properties in this case of metal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so so this is a sort of there's a second category. You have ceramics, glasses, composites, yeah. and hybrids. So, so just
1: to be clear, I mean these these yeah. these, these metallic glasses are they're they're metal alloys oh, but okay. where you where you where you where you affect the structure of them, right? If that makes sense. That's what I was saying. So it, it would be like taking gold or some composite like that, and then adjusting the way that it that it cools so that it becomes a solid but not in the, the same crystal lattice that it would normally okay if that, okay. If that makes sense so right. so right. it gives it different different properties um, than it would normally have
0: it gives it different properties so but but um, but they they conduct electricity
1: yes they, they yeah yeah, yeah. But they they might be so in some cases they can be their, their shapes can be adjusted or they can have have more strength or more more or t- be tougher than other materials so so these are something things that have just really been been um, sort of invented in the past in the past few years and they're still yeah. they're still coming up with with uh, <laughs> right. with, with uses of these but but again I think it gives a great example of how of how materials that you might think are you know, people often think that there's a standard type of metal or there's a standard type of glass. And it turns out that by doing research on how to how to heat them and cool them rapidly, slowly, you can deform them in such ways that they become different types. They, they become different than what they were with even improved properties.
0: Right. Right. Now, what's the difference between ceramics and glasses? They, they kind of fit into one class of materials or no? Uh,
1: let's see. Ceramics are yeah, <laughs> <You're putting> my, <laughs> my knowledge of the, uh, of the thing, I, I, I guess ceramics are, are different are, are, are typically different types of materials, I would say. Okay. right. Um, you know, I think that I think that glass you know, they're, they're, they're similar to each other. I mean, generally a ceramic will have a, a, a better defined crystal structure. And neither,
0: um, I would imagine neither conduct electricity, right?
1: T- the, the typical ones, yes, unless typical they call ones. it a conducting glass. Um, Right. I shouldn't say that they can. I mean, okay. So, so they can conduct electricity. It's just, you know, often you have things that are like oxide ceramics, which are generally insulating. There are conducting ceramics. And in fact, you know, one of the, one of the most famous types of of high temperature superconductors, which are perfect conductors of electricity are Mm. ceramic materials. Okay. Okay. So, So it's, you know, again, we're, we're pushing between sort of what we what we're com- what we what we are comfortable with in, in sort of everyday life, which are ceramic pottery and things like this. Yeah.
0: I mean, so they're sort of versus, converging, right? Yeah. So so these terms that we use uh, you know, to kind of categorize materials, yeah. it may not work actually <laughs> in a few years.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think I think that's maybe an yeah. important point to make that yeah. um that there's a there's a lot to be learned at the cross section between different types of materials. Right between between ceramics and glasses and 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 conductors and insulators, uh, there's there's usually um, th- there's there's things at the edges that cross between them that are that have new opportunities for applications and for understanding the science of these. Um, yeah. And I'm sorry if some of these I seem a little vague on things like ceramics and glasses because it's it's interesting this this, mater- this material to study that you're that you're kind of basing this discussion off as a um, yeah. it's a um, it's every ten years. Uh, they, the, nation, the the national, that usually the um, the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation commission commission this survey to figure yeah. out what what are what are the major advances in the past ten years of materials research and what what are the sort of promising opportunities in the next ten years of materials research. Um, right. But you know, materials research is a huge field, which, as you said, encompasses physics and chemistry and material science, and so you know, they put together a team of something like 25 experts from all these different fields to work mm. on different sections of this document. And so my own specialties are the areas of superconductivity and low dimensional materials and topological materials. Um, They're right. a little bit more on the physics side of these. Um, things like ceramics and glasses, I would say are more classic material, sci- material science focused areas. Um, yeah, yeah. And then there's some areas like polymers, which are really, you know, in the the chemists work on that a lot. So, um, and it, with everything, with, with specialties the way they are, I have a vague idea of what ceramics <laughs> are, but it's not it's not an area that as a physicist I've ever really researched in or worked on.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, you know, all these areas are getting uh, so complex in some ways mm-hmm. and so varied that, um, you know, so like you say, physics, chemistry, biology all coming together. So there is some convergence happening mm-hmm. In basic sciences, but on the on the uh, on, on the same token, it's also getting highly specialized, mm-hmm. right? So, so from an application uh, standpoint, uh, so quantum materials and strongly correlated systems. Mm-hmm. This is one of the sections, and this is where uh, sort of you specialize as well, right. right? And so, so what is what is quantum materials to start with?
1: Um oh this is so it's another, it's another kind of vague term i think that yeah we, we use quantum materials when when we're talking about materials where um the, the quantum properties of the atoms are important okay oh it's, it's kind of weird because quantum properties are always important in fact in a metal we we talk about just the atomic wave functions overlapping and yes. allowing them, you know, giving you a conduction band where everything conducts well. And all of that is, is fundamentally based on quantum mechanics. Hmm. But when we talk about the quantum properties, we're often talking about even the quantized energy levels matter, that okay. there, there's d- discrete energy levels of the problem that, right. that come into play somehow. Um, and I'll give you an example of that, would be um, a superconductor, which is a material that conducts perfectly, like I said. There's an, there's an energy scale um, mm. where a system will be superconducting. But if you exceed that energy scale, it will no longer be that. Um, or even if you have a very thin material, there's an energy scale where it acts like it's basically two dimensionals. Um, right. But above that energy scale, it may not. You know, so so there's, there's lots of, you know you can quant- they, they said quantum energy levels, things are confined um, up until some energy scale. So once you start talking about those energy scales, we typically will start talking about quantum materials.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so superconductivity is basically something can conduct electricity without any resistance. And um, it used to be that we have to get close to absolute zero to observe this right long time ago. Mm -hmm. And the things improved. I haven't been following this. Where are we in terms of, you know, in the 80s, there were visions of room temperature, superconductivity. Are we getting any close to that?
1: Um, well, unfortunately, you know, that the, the transition temperature of superconductivity hasn't gotten much higher in the past mm. 30 years, really. Um, but I think our understanding of, of these superconductors has increased immensely. Um, yeah. they're, they're, it turns out they're very, very complicated, and you know these are sort of one of the original quantum materials because they're they're not just superconductors. They tend to have a lot of different properties. Many of them have magnetic properties or other. Um, the electrons form stripes or you know, form other structures on their surface before they become superconducting. Mm. So all of these, there's been a lot of progress in understanding all of the different electronic behaviors of high temperature superconductors. And I think that these are fundamental, this is fundamental progress toward designing something that has a higher transition temperature. So exactly. we're not there yet, but there's been a lot of progress in the fundamental understanding so when
0: you say high temperature superconductor uh, conduct- uh, conductor um, you mean something like 100, 100 degree kelvin or something like that or
1: yeah i think let's see so the the highest the highest temperature is a uh, um yeah, something. something I think, yeah, something like 130 Kelvin or 150 Kelvin or something like that.
0: Okay. Right okay. above
1: liquid nitrogen temperatures.
0: Right, right, right. So...
1: so it's still cold, but it's not as cold <laughs> as you know most. Many of the many of them had the early ones have transition. The elements have transition temperatures of you know four Kelvin or something. So 100 Kelvin is is pretty balmy, or 150 Kelvin is pretty balmy compared to that.
0: Right, right, but uh, not good enough for, you know, any sort of uh, conventional applications like um, like electricity, you know, um, uh, for wires for electricity and things like that. Because uh, we used to think that it is coming, right? Room temperature, superconductivity is coming, in which case you can actually, I think you gain something like 30% yeah. uh, in losses in transmission, yeah. if I remember correctly. yeah. So that's a big deal in terms of um, electricity, but uh, that is that is not there. It's true.
1: Uh, um, but yeah. I, you know I would just to, to add to that though, I think one of the interesting things about fundamental science is that you never know what what you're going to get instead. So you know I, I think if we could find more energy efficient ways to transmit electricity, that would be hugely important for society um, and for our for our for our world. Um, on the other hand, things like magnetic resonance imaging, MRIs run on conventional superconductors. So an MRI has a superconducting magnet inside, which allows you to put, a, make a very, very large magnetic field for this imaging without overheating the wires. Hmm. Um, and these work perfectly well with conventional superconductors. Of course, would it be easier and you know, it be cheaper to have it without a superconducting you know, magnet inside or without, without the helium cool, cool you know, these are right. cool to four Kelvin or something, without a helium cold magnet it would be easier. But you know, even with a helium cooled magnet, these are in- impressive uses of superconductivity. Um, I just want to add to that, the other thing is that the most, I don't know if you've been following the quantum computing progress that's been made in the past few years, but there's, again, in the past 10 years, there's just been tremendous progress in terms of making quantum computers. Uh, They went from something like, you know, a couple bits to hundreds of bits, which is incredibly hard to do. No, no, I don't think anyone, many people were not sure they'd even get to this stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the IBM computer and the Google computer are all based on superconductors. Right. And so, even though we're not, you know, even though we don't have power delivery to our houses with superconductors, our first quantum computers may well be with conventional superconductors. Mm.
0: Mm. So, so one other item here is uh, two-dimensional quantum materials. Yes. So two-dimensional meaning uh, it is just one one atom thick.
1: Yes. Yeah, so 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 yes. Yeah. So the materials that you're talking about here are. Um, are atomically thin materials. And this is something that's really another, these are materials that have been discovered in the past 10 years, basically, um, yeah. I mean, 10, 15 years. And these have been um, probably one of the most exciting developments in in material science is the discovery that something that's only one atom thick can be stabilized in air. Yeah, Because uh, if you think about it, that's so thin, right? I mean, you can already <laughs> think of taking the thinnest material that you could imagine and hang, holding it up, it would just crinkle, it would, It would blow away you couldn't hold it it would tear right there's so many reasons to think that this couldn't exist and yet it was discovered that you could just lay this out flat on a little substrate and there'd be an atom thin layer of material that you could put contacts on and study that you could put shine light on that you could image all sorts of things and all sorts of new behaviors Um,
0: is it is it transparent
1: (laughs) yes it is it is So, so the first material like this to be discovered was graphene uh, this is uh, this is carbon in a lattice structure um, that's just one atom thick on a surface. And graphene has many, many amazing properties, including being transparent. So it's, it's, it's very strong, um, highly conductive electrically, and also transparent. So very interesting for transparent material applications. Right. Um, but since the discovery of graphene, there's been a discovery of many, many, many more types of materials that can be made just one atom thick and have also all sorts of unique properties. And so there's just been a boom in our ability to create, understand, and manipulate these purely 2D materials. Mm.
0: And in some of these, um, I, I don't know that the technical basis for this uh, Nadia, but topolo- topological materials. Yeah. So so you sort of get some sort of superconductivity on the edges or something like some
1: conductivity, that? conductivity, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, to- topological materials are another thing that's just been studied, that's been discovered in the past 10 years. Um, this yeah. is a rare case where these were um, predicted theoretically before they're discovered experimentally. Mm. Um, and, 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 and predicted just someone looked at the electronic structure of it and said, you know, if you have this material, the electronic structure should be inverted in this way where instead of having just a standard insulating material, you should get an insulating material that on the inside, but it has yeah. conducting surfaces on the outside, which is really yeah. crazy when you think about it, right? I mean, what <laughs> would make a material, you know, how does it even know where the edges are or anything? And that's what tells you that there's something really crazy quantum mechanical about this. Hmm. Um, so and, and yeah, go on.
0: And so, so one of the applications of that is in transistors,
1: right? Is well, it? Possibly, yeah, yeah. so the, these conducting surfaces tend to have very low power dissipation. Um, and they can transfer um, spin, you know, they can transfer electronic, a quantum mechanical property of electrons called spin rather than charge preferentially. So that is also uses less energy and can can, can move things without heating. So um, they could be used for for interconnects possibly. They can use for pretty, for specialized type of transistors on off switches um, for, for different types of, of inductors possibly. Um, you know, and these are, and it's interesting. These are, you know, the, so these, these quantum materials are, are you know, the things that we do in my lab that we do research on. So I do a lot of superconductivity and mm-hmm. I do a lot of superconductors connected to these topological materials. So mm-hmm. we found, for example, that when you put a superconductor on a topological material, that the superconductivity only flows through the surface of it. Right? Even mm-hmm. though there's a whole interior, you get almost all the superconductivity just on the surface flowing around the outside of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah so you can see and this and this again is a, is a new way of maybe having an efficient transfer of superconductivity so you find really interesting behaviors when studying these
0: yeah so you know the battle on computing as you know is is moving toward power consumption yes i think uh, i think all this uh, data um, data centers um, i think is consuming something like 30% of all the power produced <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the world uh, so they are, it, you know, right? they're setting this up in uh, in Scandinavia because you know northern northern Sweden and Finland and all of that because, it cooling these things down is another big problem. Yeah, for, that's right. For data centers, that's right? right? And so these things presumably will have applications in that area.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so lower power devices is is huge. So things like um, topological materials that have surface states or edge states that can conduct without dissipating power are incredibly important. Um, superconductors, of course, don't dissipate powers. They're incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and then things like graphene, you know, the other things like graphene are also, they, they, they can dissipate power, but they could also be made very, very small and still conduct in ways that other materials can't. Yeah. Um, you know, I should mention that, you know, one of the interesting things, it's not, it is, of course, for applications that we know, but one of the goals, you know, for example, in my group and other groups of looking at these materials is for thinking of just new behavior, what about applications we haven't thought of yet? Yeah. You know, so when, you know, we do things like we put magnets on topological materials and see how the current is varied um, mm-hmm. or, or, or connect, you know, or look at, at graphene and see if we can induce, induce you know, if we can modify the, the surface, you know, if we can um, put it on a nanostructure, the surface in such a way that we can control its electronic properties in a way that hasn't been done before. You know, if we modify, if we induce changes on the surface of graphene, can we get edge states that didn't exist before? Um, And so these are sometimes, yes, in the long run, we're looking for applications like less power, um, you know, higher switchability, all these things. But also, is is there a new behavior? In in topological materials, the electric and magnetic fields are are connected in a way that's not seen in almost any other material. You know, can we have a new type of electromagnetic switch that you didn't even know about before? yeah this is yeah,
0: not and do do you see possibilities, nadia for levitation? I know that the the levitating trains uh, use
1: superconductivity right right some of them do yeah it's it's possible it is possible i think um uh you know again, I think there's some there's some people have moved away from that a little bit because that mm-hmm. would require if we if we did find high temperature superconductivity, that might be efficient right yeah. um it might not be efficient right.
0: But the 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 topological materials I wondered um it's a, such a weird weird thing, right? And and uh, power flows on the edges only in one direction too, right? Uh
1: yeah, that's right. Power only flows in one direction on the on the thing. Yes. And so
0: I wondered, you know, I mean I, I know nothing about this, but I wondered, you know, combining different topological materials if you can get some sort of magnetic levitation at no cost. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, (laughs) I'd probably stick with superconductors (laughs) for magnetic levitation. I think think you get other things out of topological materials. I think, um, you know, when I I think about materials, it's interesting because of course I work on materials, but I work on the physics side of materials. I think about their fundamental properties. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that we're really exploring nature in the same Mm -hmm. way that people look at the sky and wonder What's out there? What does it mean? How how did did those stars get there? What are they made of? They're not asking because they think there's an application. Although yes, it may be nice to go to the moon or to Mars or something like that. They're (laughs) asking because they they have curiosity. And out of that curiosity comes knowledge plus applications like GPS's, right? That rely on general relativity and things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So materials are very similar. Although we often will think of materials as very practical because of course, it's what we use all the time. Right. For every device and everything we touch is a material. On the other hand, I think that by looking at these things, there's a huge exploration aspect of what can we find, what what is different in these things, what can we what can we imagine and see that we couldn't imagine and see before, right. and out of that comes entirely new behaviors and even new applications.
0: Right. Right. So yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the 3D printing uh, revolution oh, huge. Uh, yeah. gives, it a, gives it a new meaning too, right? It you, does. You've <laughs> you got to feed the, uh, feed the 3D printer in the future.
1: Yeah. So 3D printing adds a, I would say, a more practical aspect to it, which is um, we've, just just, we've just talked about how you know, materials genome and you know, we, there's, there's different combinations of materials that give you different properties. And we're speaking out more and more about these all the time. And what a 3D printer does, is it gives you the opportunity to make immediate changes, right? To, to make the thing you need in real time, even if you're out in the field or, yeah. you know, in a school or in the office or, you know, on a battle zone or anywhere you are, you can, you can make something specific for your needs just by combining materials. It's like, right. you know, the best, you know, the, the dream in some sense of, of materials applications would be combining the materials genome 3d printing (laughs) so you you make you come up with something and then you just make it we're we're not there yet but it's it's an exciting it's exciting dream i think
0: yeah it's also you know in some areas um, generally humans have uh, a prescriptive way of experimenting and oftentimes uh you know if you have a, a design space and you're searching that design space to find something Uh, Sometimes it tends to be inefficient because we bring a lot of biases into it. Uh And so one direction artificial intelligence is to say, let the machine experiment and let it guide the search of the design space uh, to find something.
1: Uh Uh,
0: And I wondered, you know, if there are things like that that you you are doing in material sciences arena. So, so what I mean, uh, Nadia, is mm-hmm. you know, let's say you have a you have an objective function. You you want a material of these properties, mm-hmm. and uh, a, you know, humans could go into the lab and they could experiment, they could do different things using their intuition and experience and knowledge. Alternately, you can you know uh, basically let the machine run those experiments and learn from those experiments and redo those experiments right. in some way. Right. Um, in in biological sciences, for example, these types of things appear to have more power. Uh, part of that is because of the biases, you know, people bring to the process.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, again, that would be, it'd be incredibly, inter- it'd, be, it'd be incredibly useful if we could do that. And there's a lot, and there is, like I said, the materials genome, part of the materials genome project is trying to do things like this. I mean, people will make what we call an evaporator, which means that they put, you know they can put up to like 50 or 60 materials inside a mm. inside a system and then they they can they can you know heat the materials so that they they evaporate meaning that they, they can go onto another substrate and they yeah. can make you know up to 60 combinations of materials in situ for example right, um, right. so You know, you can have a machine make, and people are doing, are trying to have, you know, people make machines where they do do this, they make gradations where you have different combinations, the same materials and all the time, and then you can automatically test it for different things. I think that there's a space for this, and it's incredibly interesting. Um, You know, the problem problem is that, as I mentioned, there's so many, there's still too many variables (laughs) to make it useful all the time. Yeah. So you know, let's say you put sixty materials in there, and then you had, you know, you have sixty to the sixty combinations right, right. of materials, right. and then you have to test these sixty to sixty. But what are you testing them for? Right. Are you testing them for thermal properties? Are you testing them for electric properties? Are you testing them if they're to see if they're topological? Um, there, there's lots of things that, you know, this is a tool, but just one, I would say another tool that's been, for example, that's been invented recently is, is a more analytic way of, of predicting, for example, whether things are topological or not, right? This is yeah. one of the huge advances in the field is, is that there's a way of actually looking at the crystalline structure of, of known materials and then predicting them to have specific topological properties. And and this is something that I think that combined with a genome project, um, using an analytical calculation or understanding of the way materials are and their structures, um, and then categorizing them according to you know these have good thermal properties, these have good electric properties, combining that with some machine learning and some yeah. materials genome, those combined have I think a lot of promise.
0: Very, very could be very powerful. Yes, I just want to. So that these topological materials, when they superconduct, um, the
1: top, top, well, yes uh-huh, go on
0: yes. Uh, so um, so when, when when it superconducts, it's, it's doing that in room temperature.
1: So the so the topological materials aren't what we call superconductors intrinsically necessarily okay. not not all of them. they yes. they're just conductors.
0: Okay, um, but they, it does get some sort of superconducting ring around it, right? So no, no, they they, no. they just get a
1: conducting ring around them, okay. not, not a okay. superconducting. Now okay. you you can you, some of them are do happen to be superconductors, superconductors, and oh. you can connect them to superconductors. And a superconducting topological system is useful for you know different sorts of quantum computing schemes, for example. So it's oh. a whole another okay. okay. area. We're also looking at you know, we do a lot of coupling superconductors to topological systems in my lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, the, the, the conducting surfaces are just conducted, they're metallic conducting yeah. surfaces, not yeah. superconducting surfaces. Okay. And the difference is that a metallic system, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a, um, like I said, there, a, a superconductor is a quantum mechanical ground state, yeah. meaning that there's an energy gap to becoming a superconductor and you don't have these in the topological system it's not a superconducting energy gap. It's maybe a topological energy gap but not a superconducting one. right, right. Uh,
0: I don't know if there's any connection there. I just want to ask you. So you know this cognitive computing arena, one of the things that um, that seems to be interesting is this membrister uh-huh.
1: um,
0: right. So yeah. uh, I wondered if, if any applications that you have, you have looked at uh, for membristers in this arena.
1: Um I haven't particularly looked at memristors yeah. but um I mean I think people are looking at these as as for neural networks and things I thought isn't that yeah. um, right um Yeah
0: yeah so the you know the the issue in artificial intelligence is that almost all of it is driven by software today and you know we're going to hit you know some kind of a constraint on the software side so so one one idea is to actually have hardware hmm. um so you know it is something that can memorize and compute at the same uh, same location just like uh, just like a neuron does in the brain and so so i don't know i mean there might be some applications here as well sure i mean my my understanding
1: yeah. of a memristor is this is yeah. that is that or or of, of these neural networks is that they're they're basically trying to reproduce the behavior of neurons yeah. neurons are things that that fire in short pulses right and that right. and that have mem- and have memories of each other, right? If one fires, another fires, for example, and they know that the length and duration of each other's firing. And yep. so there's a very specific behavior of neurons, like I said, these these quick pulses that have relationships to each other right. that you can mimic with certain type types of devices, right? So if you can create something that has a blip like that that's you know that can be turned on and off in a very specific way with a voltage, and that can, connect to another one of these devices, then you can mimic a neuron. And memristors are basically things that can be used like this to mimic neurons. Yeah. Because once you can start mimicking neurons, right, then you can start feeding it information and seeing how it behaves in the same way that neurons behave.
0: Yeah, so so the beauty of neuron is that it's actually memorizing and computing. So compute and memory uh, are co-located. Right. And so that does, you know, well, that's what I was saying, thing. that, they, that yeah. they
1: remember, they rem- they have, as I say, by the connection to other neurons. They know yeah. when they fired and they know when other things have fired, basically, right? right? But they also can fire independently. Um, right. but, but I guess what I'm saying is that it's not, you know, th- these devices in and of themselves are, are um, I-, I wouldn't say that they're a revolutionary in and of themselves, yeah. um, but there is some potential opportunity there in getting them to mimic. Actual neural circuits and, and mimic neurons.
0: Right, right, yeah, and there is enough to be <laughs> enough to learn inside the brain. Uh, I think that'll keep us occupied for a long time. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. So I don't. So I don't know. So do, do, yeah. is your question? You know, are we going are we going to come up with new materials like this that can that right. can mimic the brain? Is there a connection between materials and biology? All these things. And the answer is is yes. I think that there's you know there's always going to be a connection that people will find analogies between. Yeah. um between you know brains and 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 uh, electronic devices yeah. uh, you know I think there's m- my guess is that there will be a great advance when we have our first quantum computers yeah. which can solve problems in parallel in the way that you know that they may be able to mimic brains better or even improve on them by doing this massively parallel processing that founds these lo- these lowest energy states um, but, uh, but yes, all of these things are dependent at the end of the day on materials advances.
0: Yeah. It, it depends on materials. So it, um, I, I think, you know, it is true that this is where most of the action is going to be in the sense that if you want to advance computing, we have to look back into hardware, yeah. into into materials. Yeah. I think software is going to run out of steam yeah. if it hasn't already, right? so that's where the connection is. I want to also touch very quickly, uh, Nadia, on this bio-inspired materials. Is that an idea that you can talk about?
1: Oh, I haven't worked on those very much at all. Okay. I think, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> think it's—I mean, I, I know a little bit about it. I think it's extremely—I don't—I don't have any details, but it's an extremely interesting idea, of course. And it is what it says, right? You look at a butterfly wing and and hmm. see what this what the lattice structure of those butterfly wings are, and then try to recreate that in a in a different sort of material, an artificial material. Um, yeah. And of course, as you know, I've seen artificial shark skin, right? Sharks can the water—it's just just uh, you know, it just kind of shears off of sharks, and you can make an artificial shark skin and a wetsuit that does a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's all sorts of things like this, and I think we have we have a lot to learn from from biology. Again, you know, we're dealing with and we're dealing with a, a a space material space that's that's enormous, right? If we just right. try to try to c- just combine everything blindly, we have, you know the age of the universe combination <laughs> that we can possibly make. And so this is why I keep saying, if we if we use all the tools available to us, which includes some machine learning, some other things, and looking at what exists, I think being in, looking and seeing what exists in biology and how, you know, billions of years of genetics have have managed to solve some problems is a hu- is a tool that we should and can use.
0: Right, right. Yeah, we touched on this already. So on the process side, Um, simulation and computation tools those things are improving so integrated computational materials engineering and materials genome initiatives we talked about that computational material science and engineering machine learning and materials discovery Mm -hmm. Um, these are things that we would not have talked about even 10 15 years ago no no not at all (laughs) and so the field is field is sort of fundamentally changing yeah um Part of the remit of this committee uh, that looked into both history and looking forward is sort of uh, assessing how competitive we are mm-hmm. in this arena, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your sense? Are we are we ahead? Um, what What are other countries doing in this
1: area? Um. Yeah, a, I mean, I'm not. I, I don't know if I want to come in if we're ahead or not, but I would say that other countries are either catching up, have caught up, or have have jumped ahead. There's mm. the, the problem with materials studies, um, including devices and including fundamental material studies, is that is that they don't seem as exciting to people sometimes. I mean, <laughs> funding agency, the public, you know, it's just a material. Who cares? Right. right. Um, and, and it can be slow, right? People have to spend a lot, like I said, there's, there's a lot of grunt work there of just figuring out what mm-hmm. temperature things combine and okay. what happens as you cool something slowly. And there's a lot of failures in there. You know, you can spend years just trying to make one new material and then it never works. Okay. And so you have to actually invest a lot of resources, personnel time and effort into doing, into making new things. Um, and unfortunately in the US, the way that the budget structure, the grant structure, the reward structure is set up, um, right. it's not set up to reward that sort of slow investment. Right. Um, so what happened was that there was less, less and less money put into materials infrastructure, into hiring material scientists, into hiring physicists who looked at materials just to do fundamental studies. Whereas other countries like China and mm-hmm. Japan spent a lot of time and money in building up their materials infrastructure. Right. And so for the past, you know, 10 years, you've started to see a lot more new materials be discovered in China, for example, mm. because it, you know, it's building, you know, what, that's that system I said that has 62 elements inside that can evaporate, that can make different combinations of materials. You know, that thing costs several million dollars. Mm. You know, it's not the sort of thing you can just build in your basement. Someone has to invest in it. You know, the, the, the government has to invest at the highest level in these things. Right. So I think that there's been, that we've, we've not invested enough materials. And there's been recognition of this at the top. There have been, you know, the National Science Foundation, for example, has started some new materials initiatives. Mm-hmm. There have been some, you know, some private foundations like the Moore Foundation, which have started investing in materials people. But we just need more. And I think at the end of the day, the materials are the basis of so much of what we do. And again, just the fundamental nitty-gritty, how do these materials combine part of it rather than the most exciting you know, I discovered a whole new material and field, you know, it has to be supported, you have to support both sides of that. Right. And right. You can do more. Yeah.
0: And, and what's the, you know, what's the intellectual property patenting status? Um, you know, so suppose you come up with a with a new process, suppose you come up with a new combination, uh, are those things patentable?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Of course okay. they are. Yes. Yeah. And so if
0: you just uh, sort of look at the, the cross-sectional, you know, number of patents coming out of countries, uh, is the U.S. competitive in, in, in you know, number of patents?
1: Uh, this I don't know. I'd have to okay. look it up. Okay. Yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be interesting. You know, it's one output that we can see, right? Yeah. And uh, that, that sort of Includes what universities are doing, what the government is doing strategically in this area. Um, it's a very difficult thing, like you say, because it's a long cycle investment yeah. and a long cycle return problem, right. right? And so you can imagine countries like Japan uh, really doing well in this area because they seem to have longer horizons,
1: right? But uh, even the European Union does. I mean, that's a crazy thing: is yeah. that even the European Union? will invest a lot of money in, in big centers for materials for example right um, and and uh, you know they, they have a huge center in graphene and they have huge centers in in magnetics for example um, it, it requires a high level government investment that that other countries will make um,
0: and most students need to get into it so you have to sort of make this field more sexy I guess right, right exactly yeah so there was a, there, there was a Nobel Prize. Uh, 2016
1: or something in the materials, Selena? Was it? Was that? I don't know. So, when graphene won the Nobel Prize in, in right. 2005, right. I think.
0: 2005. Yeah, there was something in 2016. I can't quite remember. That was also. I thought. Oh, I'm sorry. 2010
1: point. was the graphene Nobel Prize. Okay. Um. Uh, 2016 Nobel. I'm curious what that is. Uh.
0: Because those types of things help, right, uh, to sort of showcase the industry. Oh,
1: of course, the, the, the 2016 Nobel Prize was the Koslitz Thalys Haldane. This was for a topology of materials. Interestingly, okay. this was Koslitz, so Duncan Haldane, um, kind of the theory, they, they, they're all theoreticians, and um, he did the theoretical basis of a lot of topology. But Koslitz and Thialis, um worked on two dimensional superconductors, which to mm-hmm. me is especially interesting because it was a topic that I'd worked on for my thesis project, yeah. um, looking at. At transitions in that two-dimensional superconductors make between superconducting and insulating states, and they discovered that these these transitions that they make were um, were due to could could be described by. Um, the top- topology, basically yeah. the, you know, it's hard to describe, but anyway, they discovered that it wasn't just, it wasn't a simple electronic structure, it was sort of a meta way of describing it. Um, and they won a Nobel Prize for this, because that paved the way for this field of topological behavior that we talk about now. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, that, I mean, that that's that's sort of, a, that was based on, you know, materials. I mean, when we say materials, this is condensed matter physics, right? right. <laughs> They're condensed matter physicists, we say condensed matter, because all materials, that's not gas or you know, liquids or single particles as condensed matter. But there, there've been a lot of condensed matter physics, Nobel prizes. Um, it's just that historically, they haven't gone to the people who make the materials. And in yeah. fact, was a very famous case that there were two awards for a quantum Hall effect. This is an effect, this is really mm-hmm. the first topological effect that was that was discovered. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to think of when the quantum Hall effect, Nobel, so the Nobel prize was given in 1985 for, for, for this material, um, but it wasn't given to the person who grew, who who grew the materials.
0: Right? <laughs> that is engineering.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So and and saying, Actually, I'm not thinking. I'm not actually thinking of the fractional quantum Hall effect. This was the one. So there's a quantum Hall effect, which is just a standard material, and then there's a, a much more, um, a, a much more sort of specialized case of this, where there is. We call the fractional quantum Hall effect, where it's, it's, it's a, you see these dips at these fractions of conductance. Um, and that was something that was enabled only because a material, um, gallium arsenide, a certain type of, of semiconductor, was made extremely pure. Hmm. Um, but the person who made this material was cut out of the prize. And the people who <laughs> just measured the material or predicted the material were given the prize. And so this is the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that we have to stop,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: that, you know, the people who enable it and make these things are as important as the ones who measure it.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so so in conclusion, Nadia, if you look forward five years, let's say, where do you think we will make the sort of the biggest leaps um, in material sciences and material sciences research in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, materials, condensed matter physics, material science, I think... Um, I think that there's two, I think there will be progress with with combining machine learning with existing knowledge, especially if we combine machine learning with things like metadata, you know, how things are made, temperatures, all this. If you can figure out a way of putting metadata into machine learning in the next five years, that could be transformational because it changes something that is drudgery of trying everything to being able to try to make new materials with a very efficient and good starting point. Um, which would make it much more appealing to people, I think.
0: Make it much more appealing. So you yeah, can delegate a lot of the mechanics to the machine. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. Exactly. So you can you can, you can do the, the drudge work of just trying all sorts of things so you hit upon something interesting might be taken care of computationally. And then when you start, you can deal with how do you optimize it? Do you see these behaviors? You can start getting some more interesting things to work on. Right. So that's one I think could be could be huge. Um, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. that, that that's an area that could, could transform condensed matter physics and materials research. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Yeah, this has been great, Nadia. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Uh,
0: Good luck with your your research. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.